It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Ignite your life with passion and purpose. Your health, your wealth, your happiness. Make it good. This is Modern Love with Dr. Brenda Way. A big thank you to Rainbow Grocery, our favorite grocery store here in the San Francisco Bay Area, for being our sponsor, because a healthy body is a sexy body. All right, everyone, welcome to tonight's edition of Modern Love Radio Podcast. So I have a question for you. Are men emotionally stoic? Are they confident? Are they providers, not caregivers? Are they the decision makers? Are they dominant and heterosexual? And is it all about the subjugation of the feminine? These are some of the questions and issues we're going to talk about tonight with our guest, who is an expert on talking about men in the man box. I'm so happy to introduce you to Mark Green, who's been researching, thinking about, writing about, talking about issues with men for a while now. He's got a new book called Remaking Manhood, which is a collection of his most powerful articles on American culture, relationships, family, and, yes, parenting. It's a timely and a balanced look at the issues at the heart of this whole dilemma of modern masculinity. What does it mean? He's the executive editor of the Good Man, excuse me, that's the Good Men Project. I must be projecting here. Mark's articles on masculinity and manhood have received over 150,000 Facebook shares, 5 million page views, and he writes and takes men's issues on at Salon, Shriver Report, Huff Post, HLN, BBC, New York Times, etc., etc. And most importantly, you can find his work at his website, which is www.remakingmanhood.com. All right, welcome to the program, Mark Green. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Brenda. Oh, it's a pleasure. So what is this whole movement of modern masculinity? What is it about? You know, it's uh, it's funny. When you say modern masculinity and you talk about manhood and it feels sort of um, sort of high intellectual, fancy schmancy. Oh dear, here we go again. 
Um, but what we're honestly talking about these days is that men's lives and the way they choose to live their lives is changing dramatically. And it's men, men have been impacted by significant economic downturns, uh, significant changes in the way they earn and live and, uh, and engage their families. And because of all of this change, they've been sort of freed to look at life in different ways. And one of the most prominent ways that men have changed the way they engage their families is, uh, at last count, uh, something north of 2 million men are now full-time stay-at-home dads. Wow. And, I had no idea the number was Yeah, and about 7 million... About 7 million are doing at least one or two full days of child care and then working as well. So we're talking about a, a shift um, in men's lives in terms of how they, how they view themselves and how they view what their role is. And one of the big changes has been, and this is something that affected me in my own life, I, I was the uh, stay-at-home dad for my son uh, during the first four to five years of his life. And I, I happen to be. Now, was that be a, something you elected to do, or is that because of the economic issues that you spoke of a few minutes ago? Well, oddly enough, I, I'm one of these people that that began home officing and working as a contractor. So I was earning and in the home as well. Um, so I was lucky in that regard. I was able to generate revenue and still be with him. But the transition from uh, from being a provider, just an economic provider, to being a caregiver changed my life. It changed everything in terms of my perception of what my strengths were, what my weaknesses were, what mattered to me, what was what I centered in my life. And this is because I had the same experience that millions of moms have had uh, for decades, and that is that I engaged a baby, a, a, a toddler, um, I watched him grow, I watched him change, and I fell in love with him. Ah, so this is such an interesting thing because there are so many men who report wanting stronger relationships with their children, and mm-hmm. is this part of why men don't have those relationships because they don't have the time? They're just not there to have that time. Right. I think that that part of when we talk about the man box, and you mentioned it earlier, we have this view in America culturally of what what a real man is and what men are expected to do. And it kind of was born out of the, the Industrial Revolution and what came after the Second World War. And it was this idea that men would go off and man the jobs and women would stay home and raise the children. And Even the, though women had, of course, been out there during the war yes. doing all the jobs men used to do. Right, exactly. And so they were then forced. I mean, you had you had women pilots during the war who were suddenly uh, persona non grata on the airfields of America after the exactly. war was over. So there was this this unfair, Rosie the Riveter went home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This unfair and unreasonable expectation of what men and women are. But this was classic 1940s, 1950s America, and the sets of rules that were that, that were created at that time for what a real man is uh, defined men as being emotionally stoic, expressing anger or excitement, but certainly never expressing a, a vulnerability or sadness or uncertainty or any of those things. Uh, and men men went to the offices, went to the factories, and they brought home a paycheck. 
And in doing so, they had the economic power in the family, so they were able to um, suppress women's aspirations to control women. And, and this is uh, this is part of what people uh, feminists will refer to as patriarchy, right? Right. But, but when you control the purse strings, you pretty much and and the agreement would more or less was you do what men you do what we tell you in the office and on the factory floor, and you can be the master in your home. Yeah, and of course, a lot of this did start further back. In history, it mm-hmm. just took on a different look, a different role uh, for women and men, but it's the same general idea right. that patriarchy rules. Because, of course, people have forgotten the more ancient history, which is that there was a time when there were many, many, many kingdoms and rulers and priestesses, etc., who were women. Right, matriarchal cultures, yeah, of course. Yeah, go back far enough. So I have a question here, Mark. And men taking on these new roles, having permission now to not be in the rigid man box, how do you see that affecting women? Well, it's interesting. Um, I think many women um, are trying to understand the implications of this um, because it it results in a lot of uh, unexpected um, expectations that women have to let go of. There, there's a there's a dance here between men and women. But I, I wrote an article a while back from the New York Times, and one of the things that I said was I was talking about the issue of father's rights in the case of divorce. But what I said was if all these men are going to be moving into traditionally female areas, that will allow women to move into these traditionally male areas. But the women cannot do it unless the men are willing to migrate to, to these female, uh, traditionally female uh, spaces. And we have to protect men legally as fathers if they're going to be what was, if they're going to play the role of the, the house husband. And at the same time, we have to encourage women to move through the glass ceiling and right on up because they know they have a partner that, that they can trust at home. Yeah, and if only they could trust the people who are running the places where they work, because you know it's a it's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't mm-hmm. proposition for women. It is give up the traditional role, go to work where there is still a glass ceiling. Where mm-hmm. you know, of course, I work with women all day, every day, and couples all day, every day who are bumping up against these issues because. Women are taking their careers seriously. They do want to advance. And you know all the statistics. We here in in the Bay Area, because we're so adjacent to Silicon Valley, where you think people would be the most pro-feminist because supposedly technology is blind to gender. It's not. Mm-mm. It's not. Even women who are qualified are getting passed over. And recently, uh, I'm sure you saw this in the news, one of the CEOs of one of the largest tech companies, which for now shall remain nameless, but you can all Google this article, said he was shocked to discover that he actually did have subconscious bias. Hmm. That it actually was there. He went through a, a training program. So, you know, there's a lot here because there are possibilities on both sides. Right, and there's also blind spots on both sides. There are blind spots on both sides. Now, there is this other thing, and I have to to say this. We have a lot of the roles that traditionally people have played that are not true in other cultural, ethnic, or racial groups. Mm -hmm. You know, it has not been true 
traditionally for probably about 60% of African-American women, they had no choice except to be the breadwinner because we have racism, we have sexism, we've got double and triple indemnity. We've got people who are coming here as immigrants because of poverty in their native country, and everybody has to work. And those children aren't getting the support and nurturing, neither are their parents. So I want to just broaden the discussion a little bit because you started out saying something that I believe is true, which is that so much of what drives possibilities is economic. That's true. And economic is often tied to these cultural expectations, which can be very rigid. Um, and we get trained into them as men and women. When, when we talk, I want to note something else about the man box. The man box is not a condemnation of traditional masculinity per se. The man box comes into play when those individuals who, who reside within the man box or who ascribe to that view of masculinity enforce it on others. So you have a situation where inside a, a company or inside a family or at a, in, in a playground or at a school, uh, if, if a boy or a man expresses his masculinity in ways that are not considered to be appropriate for the man box, he gets beaten up, he gets bullied, he gets put down, he doesn't get a promotion, he doesn't, he's rejected. And this policing is what defines the man box. Yeah, it's because not, we have a homophobic culture. We do. And not only homophobic, but even, even a man who says, look, I, I, I can't work late tonight, I've got, I, I got to pick up my kids. It comes into play in the most subtle and, and smallest ways as well. You, you know, Bob, what are you wearing that shirt for? That's, what, what kind of color is that to wear? You know, it's a little bit of a lady shirt there, Bob. You know, these whole, all these little microaggressions and very, very large aggressions which define what masculinity is and force men to conform. That's where the challenge is. But the greatest damage is being done for boys. And, it, and it's, across, it's across the culture. It's across socioeconomic groups. And that is this idea that boys don't share their feelings, that they have to be emotionally tough. And once you put that prohibition into place, for boys four and five years old are being told to man up and toughen up on the playground, once you put the prohibition of emotional expression in place, yes. they spend the rest of their lives feeling emotionally isolated. Absolutely. I used to do this thing with all of my clients and with all of the people who came to my seminars. I would always ask the men, can you please go back to the first time someone told you to suppress your feelings? And I would hear stories that would just, one of them was a a young man who said he got off the school bus and he was very young, maybe six years old, Mm. And he wasn't thinking, you know, six-year-olds don't. He just ran. And in running, he ran on the wrong side of the bus and got hit by a car. Hmm. And this was a school that happened to have been Catholic, and the nuns ran over, and he jumped up because he was so frightened. You know, the adrenaline was pumping. He jumped up and ran to the curb, and they ran over to him and said, are you okay? And he was crying. And they looked at him and said, well, you're up. Be quiet and go inside and sit in the corner because you were a naughty boy. Nobody checked whether he was hurt. Mm. He had a throbbing headache. He was nauseous. All the symptoms of concussion, only he didn't know it. Nobody checked. Nobody checked to see that he actually had pretty bad scrape, contusions on his back where he'd landed. He went home, and when he got to his home, his dad was there, 
and he said, Dad, I was hit by a car, and he started crying. And his dad looked at him and he said, I don't see any marks on you. Stop crying. Go inside. Wow. And it was only after the next day he was unable to get up and go to school, they realized he was injured and took him to the doctor. And that's a that's a traumatic experience, which is amplified by his inability to express or process any of it because uh, these boys and men are told uh, to tough it out. Yeah, and this guy's coming to seminars, mind you, because he hasn't been able to create a stable relationship Mm -hmm. in his life because he can't express his needs and feelings because he got that horrible message he didn't deserve to. Yep. And I'll tell you, I've been looking at some, I've been connecting the dots on a lot of this stuff, and it isn't just a question of being able to maintain relationships for men. There's a lot of information out there which is pointing to uh, to the uh, to a very clear to very clear evidence that men are dying earlier uh, in their lives because of this culture of emotional toughness. And the, the I'll run through it as quickly as I can. But um, Niobe wow. Way wrote a book called Deep Secrets. She's a professor here in, at, of applied psychology at New York University, and she discovered that adolescent boys, when they're first approaching adolescence, talk about their best friends like it's a harlequin romance. They say, I love my best friend. I couldn't live without my best friend. My best friend is the person who keeps me sane. And by the end of adolescence, toward the tail end of it, she's interviewing these same guys again, and they're saying, well, you know, these friendships are sort of fading away. One kid described it as as that friendship's being put on a crossfade, just fading out. And whenever they did say anything nice about their friends, they would use the phrase, no homo. Say, yeah, he's, he's a great guy. I like him a lot. No homo. Right. So you can see that this this uh, suppression of male friendship, this paranoia we, yeah, we have culturally about homosexuality. Yeah, and you know, we don't homo- see that in other cultures. It's so sad. I know, I One know. of the big shocks for me the first time I went to India was to see young men walking down the street hand in hand. Sure. Arm in arm. Mm-hmm. Driving. We were in a little rickshaw, and uh, the driver saw his friend on the street. And his friend yelled, hey, and there was all this joy. And he jumped in the front of the rickshaw, and they put their arms around each other. And I looked at my children who were with me and said, if only this could happen in America. Well, we're working on it, you know. Well, uh, I appreciate you working on it. Now, talk to me about how this comes home when men begin to really work on expressing their feelings, expressing their needs, how does this come home in a relationship? And for now, we'll talk about heterosexual relationships because I know it shows up the same way in homosexual relationships, working with a lot of same-gender couples. Yeah. You know, the fantasy that it's any different, it isn't because the Based suppression the same is across yeah. the board. Yeah. yeah. Um, we've... Uh, the One thing I just want to throw out here very quickly, and I'm going to go through this in two seconds, um, the connecting the dots thing about men's health. Uh, the American Association of Retired Persons did a survey in 2010. One in three adults age 45 or older said they, they reported being chronically lonely. A decade before, before that, it was one out of five. So and now then, it's one, wait, let's one in three. One in three now. Defi- describe themselves as chronically. before, it was one in five That's described correct. themselves as lonely. Yes, chronically lonely. And a woman named Judith um, Sholovitz wrote an article for the New Republic called The Lethality of Loneliness. Yes, it is very lethal. And emotional isolation is ranked as high a risk factor for mortality as smoking. 
you bet. Because isolation, for those who don't know, and I know you know this, isolation breeds depression. Right. It breeds depression and anxiety, so right away everything is thrown off. It increases likelihood of Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, neurogenerative diseases, and cancer. Tumors can even mastocize faster in lonely people. So I just wanted to put that out there, that when we talk about the man box and we talk about the emotional suppression of boys, this is not simply a question of, is everybody talking about their feelings? This is the kind of suppression of emotional expression that leads to eventually mortality. Yes. Yes. So your question about... Yeah, marriages. this is so telling because those boys develop the habit of being suppressed. And we're also seeing an increase of illness and injury in teenage boys who feel isolated and lonely, too. And they're, and they're granted permission to express anger. They're granted permission to be aggressive. Those are the two things that are, that are, that are considered to be appropriate for boys. So when we see all this violence breaking out in our culture, we ask ourselves, well, why are boys doing that? It's because they are not allowed to live authentic lives. Sure, 10% of the boys probably fit in that man box perfectly, and they're welcome to, to live within that definition of masculinity. But all the rest of us are being herded into that space and jammed into that. It's like a cattle chute for emotional expression. We're just being jammed into that narrow expression, and there's a lot of rage and frustration and fear because there's a lot of bullying and violence. And a lot of that rage comes out toward women. So yes, let's it does. talk about relationships. Yes. And for now, it's heterosexual. We're not leaving anybody out because we don't do that here. Right. But let's talk about heterosexuals for a minute. I can tell you that uh, in in my marriage, uh, and and I, uh, you know, I, in my book, I write a lot about just how these issues or how these stories have played out in my own life, uh, both in terms of my relationship with my son. And uh, and in terms of my marriage, and in terms of how we how we talk in our home, and how we try to communicate, but I I I have to tell you, it is it remains a mystery to me why I'm so happy in my marriage because part of it is just magic, but I think the magic comes down to being willing to express my sense of of how I'm feeling and how we're feeling together, and sharing that and moving those ideas back and forth all the time. Uh, I have to tell you, my wife is a uh, is a therapist. <laughs> so that helps. We it, know it, that. <laughs> she's she's very she's very she's seen a lot of couples. She so she she understands the value of all this communication. And I wish I could say something more insightful, but in in my case, um, I'm grateful, and I'm so grateful for her being able to hold my feelings when I speak. She's able to hold them. I have been in situations where the person I cared about wanted a man who was caring and thoughtful, but she didn't want to see the fear. She didn't want to see the loneliness. She didn't want to see the uncertainty. Right. And and my my wife, uh, whose name is Sally Hababa, um, can hold those things too. And it frees me to be complete in my expression. And once you're able to express those things, they dissipate. You know, They move on. You're able to move through them. Yeah, and a lot of men, this has been my experience spending many years, as you know, Mark, working with couples and retreats, workshops, et cetera. When those feelings aren't granted permission, these are the couples I see with the high levels of anger, the high levels, opposite of anger, suppression, withholding, coldness, couples that haven't had sex or touched each other in five years, and I'm not kidding, in five Mm. years. Mm. Because 
There's no bridge. Those feelings that you talked about sharing with your wife, that's the bridge. The bridge, and I'm going to use the, the language that I use, that's energy. Yeah. And the energy is high, it's strong, it's juicy and hot when you share feelings. Yeah. And I often say the best lubrication is communication. <laughs> I love that. The, 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 I, I, my father passed earlier this year, and I, I oh, spent I'm time with him. Oh, i that. Yeah. Well, I spent time with him while he was going through that. And when I came home, I had one night, time went by, and I was watching uh, – Six Feet Under, it's a show HBO did years mm-hmm. ago. And there came a moment when the son was at his father's funeral, and he said, he's gone, he's dead, I can't, I can't get him back, and this sucks, and I hate all this ritual we're doing, he's go-, you know, and I just lost it. And I started weeping uncontrollably, because prior to that moment, I had been trying to focus on the fact that I was lucky to be with him, and uh, I just broke down. Yeah. And, and, and she sat with me, while I went through that, and if she had, if I had feared doing that in front of her, I would still be carrying that that choked up, frozen feeling inside me. Right, and it would have come out in some dysfunctional way. And this is the big open secret. I just want to yeah. put this in flashing red neon lights. The feelings we don't express are the feelings we're forced to suppress, and they come out sideways. Right. They and come out in some crazy behavior oh, yeah. where you end up hurting yourself, hurting someone else. This is where the drinking, the smoking, the overeating, the overshopping, the going into your cold box and freezing your spouse out. This is where it all comes from. Yeah. And I remember as a child, I went through a lot of difficult stuff, divorce-related and whatnot as a child. And I remember distinctly as a kid Growing up in that man box, I remember feeling that whenever I did have an emotional experience start to try to happen, I felt like I was standing next to myself watching myself. Mm. I felt like I was watching someone attempting to perform an approximation of an emotion. Oh, and God. It was, oh, that sounds it, painful. Oh, God, it was horrible. And and so over the years, I have been fortunate enough, and I, I tell people all the time that that my son taught me how to love myself and taught mm. me how to believe in myself. Because that relationship, day in and day out, the caring for someone else teaches you to love yourself. Giving yourself over to the care of someone uh, is is a gift. It's an incredible gift. And and I know a lot of men don't get to do that, but I'm lucky I got Well, to. I have to also say if you are a healthy enough parent, you can give over. Unfortunately, here I go, i got to say this. There are parents who aren't healthy enough because they haven't done enough emotional work. And nurturing someone else when they haven't been nurtured, supporting someone else unconditionally when they haven't been supported. So parents, there's work to do to be able to do what Mark is talking about. And if you are a parent, you still have to nurture yourself and make sure, I call it cleaning house, you clean your own house, the inside house, the emotional house, to be available for your child. So, Mark, I know you also have recently been doing some work about divorce. Yes. So, you know, I just let me let me put the disclaimer out, everybody. Modern love is all about finding ways 
to stay connected to your partner in whatever kind of committed relationship you are in, be you black, white, gay, straight, young, old, whatever it is, it is a real spiritual test in my book to find a way through difficulties in a relationship. It makes you a better person. Now, having said that, statistically, about 12.5% of marriages can't make it. Only 12.5%, not the 51% that we're seeing. And those people falling in the 51% because they haven't done the work, roll your sleeves up. So talk to us about the 12.5% who've done everything they possibly can, gotten qualified help, and I'm going to really come down on my soapbox here Hmm. because there are a lot of therapists who see couples and qualified help means you get somebody who's a specialist in working with couples because it's a different ball game when you're a specialist. Okay, Mark, take it away. Talk to us about your work with divorce. My 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 caveat is that that some people divorce because they are I, I want to say this up front the, that they are uh, victims of abuse emotional or physical abuse and I'm not speaking Absolutely. to that group I, I I my heart goes out to them I love them but this is I'm talking right now about the 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 tens the hundreds of thousands of divorces that go on between people who simply aren't well matched who haven't been able to m- make it work and and perhaps, My, you'll forgive me, perhaps haven't found the right kind of help because right. I certainly have worked with couples who have been divorced for five years and they get the right kind of help and bam, we get back on track, they get remarried, and they're happy. Yeah, don't get me started about the wrong kind of help. I got some of that. Oh, uh, and it was tough. It was yeah, tough. Yeah. Um, but let me say this. My my message or my mission is to is to fight against the the shaming and the stigma associated with divorce in America. And uh, the issue here is that we have been taught that if we choose to divorce, it is a it is a result of us not working um not not being not being willing to stay married, not working hard enough to create a successful marriage, not uh that we don't love our kids enough to stay married uh and then what's worse is everyone who surrounds us all the people that care about us come in in that moment and in an effort to support us they demonize our ex uh, spouse or our soon to be ex spouse they uh they encourage us to uh describe ourselves as victims so that we so that we can clarify that it's not our fault that this other person did it and all of this negative dialogues yes. just spins yes. out of and control. And then there's an, another piece of it, which is that uh, people who are divorced feel such a sense of shame and failure anyway. Right. It is one of the most painful things. I know I have been on that train. It is a heartbreaking, like we don't know it already. Ditch, exactly. Last ditch kind of thing that you do only when you are out of all mm. options, desperate and can't go on. Right. So you already feel like garbage, and there is something here that's different for women than for men. Married women don't necessarily want a single woman, a divorced woman, around. And it, there's a little penalty mm. for the divorced woman That's tough. in divorce. And, of course, we have all the other penalties with 
what we call, and you know all about this, the financial penalty for women. More divorced women and children end up living at or below the poverty line than men. It goes on and on. So there's a lot of penalty for women that exceeds even what a man goes through. So I'm going to speak for women here, having been on the divorced woman train. And if you're a woman who earns a good living, often you're penalized for that, too, and end up having to support your spouse. It's tough. Even though you are the main caretaker for the children. I will so, share something interesting here in terms yes. of the male perspective. I I take care of my son. You know, I, I want to take care of my son as much as I can, so I get him half of every week. Uh, I, I have my son with me 50% of the time, and if I could have him more, I would. But we, my his mother and I co-parent, we we did everything we could to take control of the narrative. Yeah, you have three rules here that you give, and I apologize for fast-forwarding because we're no, getting close to our time. But these three rules I thought were great. Can you talk yes. about those? Uh, quickly, we, we took control of the narrative. When, when my son's mother and I decided to divorce, the first thing we did is we wrote an open letter and posted it on Facebook. And we said, look, folks, this is not – just because we are ending our marriage, it is not the end of our family. We still care about each other. We want to be when we when you see us. We want you to see us as friends, and please, we're we are not demonizing each other. We we still care about each other, and we're going to continue to raise our son. And once you create your narrative, uh, the next thing you need to do is defend your narrative. When people come to you and say, "Yeah, that wife of yours or that husband of yours, he was a jerk," you live the stories you tell. And if you say no. We have decided that that we're going to make this change, but we still are part of a family. We still care about each other, and I please don't yeah, deal with that you, person. Right, and so you set the rules and you set the boundaries. Now, you have one other step that I think is really important for people to understand, which is divorce attorneys are trained yes. to be adversarial, and what you need to do is seek a mediator or collaborative divorce solution. Exactly. And, and those are available by searching online. And I want to back you up here, Mark, 100%, because the real beneficiaries in this kind of collaborative divorce where parents aren't made enemies are the children. Absolutely. All and the if, research shows that those kids whose parents work it out in a positive way can recover from the divorce and not end up in the 70% of children of divorced families who get divorced themselves. Right. And if you look at if you look at your child's uh, parent and you say to your child that parent is a bad person, that child will instantaneously say, "Well, I come from that person, so I must be bad too." Exactly right. And that kind of damage cannot be undone. And so the idea that you are still in a family, my I don't, you know, you you may think you just divorced this person, they are going to be in your life for the rest of your life. They're exactly. always going to be the person who's exactly. part of your family. And I hope that we can I hope that we can collectively not encourage people to be adversarial in the divorce context. It isn't necessary. It, it it's actually uh, you you can the next relationship you go to in your life if you ever go to another one you're going to either go as someone who's civil and worked it out with their ex, or you're going to go as someone who's at war, because that war will never end. And, and you, you take the war into the next relationship, yes. and you already start out in an inflamed internal state, yep. which at some point comes out. So Mark Green, so much more to talk about. Mm. We want to get men out of the man box. 
we certainly want to get women out of the penalty box yes. of bearing a lot of the patriarchal pen- penalties that come with divorce and everything else. And you have a very enlightened point of view. Everybody, I want you to take down this website. Check it out. It's a conversation we all need to be part of. You know what I'd love find to Mark suggest? at www.remakingmanhood.com. Go ahead, Mark. Real if quick. I could just suggest, just look for Remaking Manhood on Facebook and come find my page there. Beautiful. There it's you a go. Great Remaking place to find Manhood. Me. All righty. Thank you so much, Mark Green. And I want to thank our wonderful producer, LeGrand Green, no relationship, and also <laughs> Cliff Dunning who is our associate producer. Everybody stand by because next week we have Dondi Dolan, who's going to talk about the five elements of love, followed by our sponsor, Rainbow Grocery, celebrating their 40th anniversary and telling us which products in the holistic aisle and supplements will enhance your love life, everybody. And then we're going to go to Tom Epperson on abundance. Yay! All right, everyone. I love you. Blessings. Good night. Thank you, Brenda. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.